Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 44. I love the heading given to this psalm by J. Alec Machir in his marvelous book, Psalms by the Day. He titles it, Faith and Faithfulness Unrewarded. And that's exactly what this psalm is about. We don't know exactly when it was written. The fact that it is in the second book of the Jewish Psalter suggests that it comes from pre-exilic times. The psalm mentions national defeats and even talks of prisoners being taken into exile in foreign lands, but those sorts of things happened any time there was a military defeat. The Babylonian exile was the greatest of these, but not the first of these. And so we can't say precisely what event lies behind this particular psalm. It is clear that the purpose of the psalm is to petition God for rescue and redress. Why have you rejected us? Now, of course, there were times in the life of Israel when no decent psalmist would have dared to ask that question. But obviously, this was not written at such a time. This wasn't written during a time of gross apostasy and idolatry. This psalm was written during a time when the nation believed itself to be walking in covenant faithfulness with God. So why has this terrible tragedy happened to us? That is the burden of this psalm. It is the song of a nation asking the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Or more precisely, Why do bad things happen to God's people? Why do the righteous suffer? Why have you turned back our armies? Why have you given us over to defeat? In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul applies this psalm, or at least verse 22 of it, to the situation of the church. The church is now the people of God. And yet, like Israel in this psalm, they are often harassed and persecuted and slaughtered seemingly made a taunt, an object of scorn to our neighbors. How long, O Lord, how long will you allow us to be led as sheep to the slaughter? How long? In a sense, then, this psalm is no different in theme or tone than the song sung by the martyrs hovering around the throne of God in Revelation 6, 10 to 11. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Closed quote. Revelation 6, 10 to 11. This psalm that we're looking at would have served those New Testament singers very well. God's people often feel and appear powerless before the malevolent forces of this world. This psalm acknowledges that. This psalm laments that. And this psalm helps the modern-day believer go to God concerning that, in faith and with an eye focused on his many past works of deliverance for his people. This is an honest psalm. This is a faithful psalm, and this is 
the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's read it together, beginning at verse 1. To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Now, once again, we see this pattern that is very common in the book of Psalms. As past works of deliverance are recalled in order to stir up faith for future deliverances. That's a very good pattern, and, and that's a useful habit for us to develop in our praying. There is, of course, a connection between faith and receiving. That connection is complicated, but it is nevertheless undeniable. And so very often you will see this sort of thing in the Psalms. The psalmist will rehearse some of these past works of God, and then having reminded God and having replenished his own dwindling reserves of faith, he will then turn his face upward and say, Something very much like what we'll read now in verse 4. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. I I believe all of that, he's saying. Help my unbelief. I I believe that you are the God of my people, Lord. So act like it. Do for me now as you did for those of my people who called on you in the past. That's how this prayer is structured. Now, we assume that the original speaker in verse 4 is the king. Again, the the words of the ascription do not indicate that this psalm was written by the sons of Korah, only that it was belonging to them or part of their collection in some sense. They probably preserved it and set it to music. This would be like our saying, amazing grace as it appears in the Red Baptist hymn book. Well, to be clear, the Red Baptist hymn book people did not write amazing grace. John Newton wrote it. But the Red Baptist hymn book people preserved it and gave it the number 283. But the assumed speaker throughout is John Newton. And here the assumed speaker is the king of Israel, whomever that was at the time. The king is saying, God, you came to our rescue in the ancient past. My fathers called upon you. My fathers believed in you. You fought for them on fields of old. They won this land, not because of our own strength or skill at war. They won this land because you took the field on their behalf. Take the field now, Lord, on our behalf. We believe in you. You are our king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Verse 5. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Now, in many of your Bibles, you'll see the word selah there. Uh, That word doesn't need to be vocalized. Derek Kidner says helpfully here. This, meaning the word Selah, occurs 71 times and a further three times in Habakkuk 3, predominantly in books 1 to 3 of the Psalter. Probably 
it is the signal for an interlude or change of musical accompaniment, closed quote. So the, the, there is no need to vocalize that. Selah is almost certainly a musical notation, the meaning of which has been lost to history. Therefore, it's not part of the content of the psalm. And since we're not even 100% sure what it means, it just seems doubly wise to leave the word unvocalized, and that will generally be my habit. Musical notations aside, what the psalmist is saying in these verses is that he is in precisely the same situation as his forebears. He, he cannot defeat the enemy by force of arms, not in my bow, not in my sword, shall I trust. I trust in you. We look to you, he says. You are our boast. You're the only reason for whatever peace and security we have enjoyed. Verse 9, but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples." All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. So here the king laments the fact that there has clearly been a change in the situation, a change he did not expect and does not understand. Things are not now as good as they were in days gone by. John Calvin says very helpfully here, he says, I freely admit that the more we think of the benefits which God bestowed on others, the greater is the grief which we experience when he does not relieve us in our adversities. But faith directs us to another conclusion, namely, that we should assuredly believe that we shall also in due time experience some relief because God continues unchangeably the same. Closed quote. That's a very astute observation. John Calvin was a great student of human nature. What he's saying is that while remembering God's great acts in the past can be very helpful in stirring up our faith, it can also have the unintended consequence of stirring up bitterness and despondency. It may cause us to wonder, why is it that God healed so-and-so and has not chosen to heal me? Why, why did God send revival in the days of, of, of so-and-so and has not seen fit to send it now? Did God love that person more than he loves me? Did God prefer those people to us? Did they do something that we haven't yet tried? Such thoughts and feelings are the enemy of true faith. Rather, we must continue to pray and continue to trust that God knows what he's doing. That is good counsel, and it demonstrates a remarkable insight into the human condition. Verse 17, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. As I mentioned in the introduction, there are 
times in the history of Israel when no halfway decent psalmist would have ever dared to write such words. There, there were many times when the idolatry of Israel was so rampant and the apostasy of Israel so brazen that any and every calamity must have been rightly and obviously attributed to their own sins and failures as a nation. But apparently, this was not such a time. This was a time when the covenant people believed themselves to be suffering unjustly. Now, maybe they weren't. Maybe this military catastrophe had been orchestrated by God to alert them to an unknown sin. We think, for example, of the hidden sin of Achan in Joshua 7. In Joshua 7, the people of God went out to battle against the city of Ai, and they fully expected God to do for them as he had done at Jericho, but he didn't. Quite unexpectedly, they found themselves completely routed by this very unimpressive little army, and immediately they realized that something must have happened. Someone must have sinned. And so they took a look, and sure enough, they discovered that Achan had stolen some of the devoted things and hidden them under his tent. But once Achan gave glory to God and confessed what he had done, then immediately the problem was resolved and the presence of the Lord went with them again into battle. So that has happened before, and it may have been the case here. We don't know. We don't know the larger narrative around this psalm. But the lesson here would be that when something bad happens to you, it is entirely appropriate to take a walk around the camp of your life, so to speak. Look for buried idols. Look for hidden sin. If you find those things, repent of them, deal with them. We see that counsel, in essence, being given in James 5. James says, James 5, 14 to 16, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So the Apostle James is telling people to confess their sins in order to position themselves to receive a healing, to receive blessing from the Lord. That's very good counsel. Hidden sin and buried idols can block us from receiving the blessings and helps of heaven. That's a very useful principle that we would do well to take note of. But... We don't know if that's what happened here. And it's probably good that we don't know because that leaves on the table the possibility that it may just have been that good people, God's people, are simply to expect suffering and ill treatment from time to time in this broken and hostile world because that happens too. Not every tragedy is a punishment from God. Sometimes it is just the reality of living in a world filled with sin and laboring under the curse. And sometimes it is because the devil is a thief who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And the more we are identified with God, the more we arouse and summon his hostility. That sense has to be considered because that is the sense, actually, in which verse 22 is used by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Paul says in Romans 8, "'Who shall separate us from the love of Christ?' Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more 
than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Close quote. That's Romans 8, 35 to 39. And in that passage there, Paul uses verse 22 of Psalm 44 to communicate that it is the lot of God's people generally to suffer the enmity of the devil and to undergo various and painful trials, but to also experience the powerful, preserving love of the Savior throughout those trials. God does not promise to shield us from tribulation. Rather, he promises to preserve us in tribulation and to purify us through tribulation. And thus, Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You hearing that? The original psalmist just wanted to win. He, he just wanted God to go out with the army again so they could win. But Paul says, God has a better plan. He plans to preserve us and to purify us and to preach through us as we hold to our faith in him through the worst that this broken world can throw at us. Thus, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than winners. More than victors. We are witnesses and testimonies to the glory of God in Christ. Hallelujah. But David, or whomever the king is here, can't see quite that far yet. And so he prays for God to come and to rescue uh, him and his people from this current trial. Verse 23, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. The king doesn't see all that we see on the other side of the cross, but he prays on the basis of what he knows. He knows that God is faithful. He knows that God loves his people and can be counted on to do what is ultimately in their best interests and to do what accords with his own character. So he prays for that. He pleads for that and he waits for that. And sometimes that's all you can do. Sometimes you need to end your prayer by saying, Lord, I know you love me. I know you see, I know you care, and I know you can. So please, Lord, help. You can pray that way. This psalm is in the Bible to tell you that you can pray that way. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the End of the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children, 
as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.